Sometimes in preparing to talk, it's difficult to silence some of the discussions that I have with some of you or just even knowing some of the stories that you guys are currently living in. One of the cool things about preaching through a set of texts as opposed to just figuring out whatever it is that Doug or I want to talk about on that given week, we're kind of forced into reading certain texts at certain times. Although as I was preparing to speak from this set of texts today, the one that Whitney read for us, it seems so appropriate for our circumstances. We've been through some, some interesting things in the last seven months. Luckily, we haven't had to weather any huge controversies as a people. Um, in many instances, we're still just getting to know one another and to know uh, what's going on. But last week, we were able to install some members, which was a huge moment, I think, for the life of this church. Not that membership is the end-all, be-all by any stretch, but just being able to see some of the relationships that are being developed and how those things actually play out in real life has been really, really, really encouraging. And it was difficult to not to see how those things impact, at least how I was, I was viewing this stuff. Before we get into the new set of texts, so I want to just uh, back up a little bit and talk through what we've been looking at in the book of Isaiah as a whole. It seems like we have uh, taken a few weeks off from Isaiah, but we're going to be back into it full force, hopefully done by Christmas, but we'll see. I'm not going to make any promises to you. But the way the book lays itself out is we have Isaiah 1 through 39, where the 8th century prophet Isaiah shows up on the scene, and he's talking about things that are happening in that political context. Uh, namely, Assyria is on the move, and there are world power um, threatening to destroy both Israel in the north and even Judah, Jerusalem in the south, which is where Isaiah is doing most of his work. The things on the landscape of history are very uh, very much tied to the message of the prophets and the relationship of the people Israel with their God. It's not as though what they do uh, with Yahweh is limited to the temple. That impacts every aspect of their life. I think we could potentially learn something from that, but in, in this first 39 chapters, we see how this plays out at a specific point in history. In chapter 40, though, as we know, it kind of turns on a dime. The message is not one of impending destruction. The message is almost one of Things have happened over the past 150 years. Jerusalem has been uh, destroyed. People have been removed from the land, which is a huge deal. I'll continue to emphasize how huge of a deal that was because the people's identity is tied to this land, that temple, this God. Being removed from that land was almost as though they began to question who they were and what their relationship was with God. These things were, were huge issues uh, that they were going through. And as we've looked in this particular uh, set of texts, the situation is one of exile, but the message is one of comfort. The very first words of Isaiah 40 and following are, comfort my people. Comfort. Yahweh shows up with this message of one that says, I know what's going on. I'm involved in what's going on. I know it's terrible. I know it seems as though everything is falling apart, but stay with me. Comfort, comfort, comfort. In the midst of that, though, it's easy for this people, Israel, to kind of have that theological understanding in one side of their head, but also just looking around and seeing the reality of it and kind of saying, yeah, that sounds nice, but that's not what's happening here. For a lot of us, that happens each and every day. I can say things, you can read things on the internet, you can read your Bible in the morning, and then when you live life, you feel so divorced, you feel so far, you feel so removed from how God is, is dealing with you. It's almost as if he feels silent and distant and not a part of anything that, that you have going on. 
so we can see, at least in their context, how this is bringing up these questions, these unanswered questions of identity, these unanswered questions of relationship, these unanswered questions of, that sounds really nice, but what have you done for me lately, almost? You know, God doesn't seem to be moving and shaking amongst his people anymore, so they're, they're doubting, almost, what the poet is saying. Comfort my people. Yeah, right. God loves you. You're precious. You're honored. You're chosen. Yeah, right. It's like the undertone of this whole set of texts where the poet is saying all these things, and sometimes within, uh, within these chapters, we hear these unstated conversations that are happening where the poet almost says this thing like, comfort my people, and then just in the very next verse, he's almost like, don't you get it? This is actually happening. You need to shut your mouth. Like he's having these conversations anticipating the reaction, but we don't get the reaction in the, in the text necessarily. And the last time we looked in Isaiah 45, we found out that God was announcing his plan for restitution and uh, restoration and reconciliation through a man named Cyrus, who was the Persian king who was conquering all sorts of empires. God says, he is my anointed, he is my Mashiach, he is my Christos, he is my man, the pagan, the foreigner, the guy that you don't think God can use, he, he was using. At that time, for that people, this message was unfathomable. God doesn't use those people, he uses us. It's that line of David that's going to be the big thing. One scholar says the community cannot believe that God would do what the poet says God is actually doing. Using a pagan emperor like Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar to bring trouble to Israel because of its wrongdoing is one thing. You see what happens in Israel's past is God uses foreigners to disperse judgment upon them. Sennacherib being that Assyrian ruler, Nebuchadnezzar being that Babylonian ruler, all of these people were key figures in the landscape of history that God was using to bring about judgment. That's okay, but when you go into it one step farther, how could God use a pagan emperor like Cyrus to bring blessing to Israel in fulfillment of that role that God had long ago given to the Davidic king? The whole theology, everything that they knew is getting turned up on its head by what God is planning on doing, that new thing that God says he's doing, where he says, forget the old things, I'm doing something completely new, and it's something that you can't anticipate. This motif of disbelief, it recurs throughout the Bible. You could even say it begins back in Genesis when Adam and Eve don't believe the promises of God and choose to go in a different direction. However you reckon that story in your own mind, it, we see that, that tendency of humans to trust our own instincts, to trust ourselves, to take this message of God and to do the complete opposite. We see that even in the Exodus. Moses shows up and says, I'm going to lead you guys out of here. And as soon as they're out, after God miraculously parts the Red Sea again, however you reckon that story, the very next chapter they start complaining. Moses, you brought us out here to die. They start that trend of disbelief again, not thinking that God can do what he says he's going to do. About 600 years after the poet is writing, the people struggle to believe that God would do what he says he's going to do through Jesus. And we see how that plays out where the Messiah, the Son of God, shows up on the world scene, but most of the people around say, that's not how God's going to work. He's going to do something different. This must not be it. So much so that they end up crucifying him for the claims that he's making, the claims that they don't believe. And I'm going to say that this pattern of disbelief continues today. We are very skilled in 
determining what God can and cannot do. We're very skilled in determining for him how he's going to act in our lives. And when it doesn't happen in that way, we lose it. There are these moments where it's almost as though we suspend this notion that God can do crazy things and we start to think differently. So much so that in the midst of perhaps hospital rooms, um, doctor's offices, funeral services, legal times with divorce and issues where we start to disbelieve God and all that he can do. In each of those instances, we start building up these walls that dramatically impact how we pray, who we are, how we do this thing called community. And I'm trying to hold these things in tension today because there's not one ounce of me that wants to diminish the pain and the tragedy of those sorts of moments in life, the things that come out of nowhere. But I want to maybe begin to chip away at some of these blocks that we've put up where we say, he can't do this, he hasn't done that, he won't be here anymore. And it's almost as if the same kind of, this underlying argument that we have in our minds is playing out in this text here. And the way that it goes is, it's sort of difficult to, to understand. This week I took to Facebook because if you want scientific data, you go to Facebook and you ask questions of people that can be as random as anything. Some people showed up out of the woodworks to answer some of these questions. But on Facebook, I asked the question, as in, in preparation for this talk, someone says to you that God is in control or God is working out his plan in whatever situation you're going through. How do you respond to that, or what is it that you think about that? The responses were honest. I think that they were somewhat predictable, especially for our people here. Some of the recurring themes were almost like it depends on who says that. If it's somebody you have no relationship with, that's annoying, and you don't want to hear that, and all you want to do is say, get out my face. You don't know me, so stop talking to me. And it's almost like as if you have these people that have poured into your life that tell you this, you're almost able to, to hold on to it a little bit more, maybe even giving you some hope in the midst of these difficult situations. That makes me go one step farther a bit to, to ask the question, do we really believe that God is in control? Do we really believe that God does have a plan? Do we really believe that God is intimately involved in the details of my life? I struggle with this. I rely on myself. Because if you want something done right, you do it yourself. So these ideas of trust and allowing God to work, thinking that he's in control, are difficult for me to grasp. And here we see how the poet addresses some of these things. Remember, he's hot off of the trails of saying, Cyrus is the guy. God is going to work through him and do great things for you. The poet says, out of nowhere... Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. They didn't say anything, but you can almost infer there's some kind of underlying tension here where the poet is saying, I know me saying this is going to elicit this response. They're going to hate it, so I better launch into this. Woe to you who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds of the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does the work say the potter has no hands? Some translations would understand that differently. Does uh, your work have no handles? Either way, the point here is clay doesn't talk to the potter. 
clay is this inanimate object that the potter is molding and shaping into whatever he or she wants it to become. We do not like thinking about God in those clay and potter sorts of analogies. It goes even farther in verse 10. Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten or what are you begetting? Some people go far enough to say that this is what's going to be weird. Are you ready? Brace yourselves. Almost as though it's from the, the standpoint of the sperm saying, what are you doing? <laughs> or the mother giving birth, like the, the infant, some commentators would say, out of the birthing canal saying, what's happening? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Those kinds of things don't happen. Sperm doesn't talk. How many times have you heard pastors say that? Probably zero. Well, there's one. Chalk it up. Infants have no say in what's happening, right? And these are the, the metaphors that the poet's using. The clay can't talk to the potter. The sperm and the infant can't talk to their parents. There's something greater happening, and they're the, the instruments that are being used here. There's something that's going on here as well with tension where there is a time to doubt. There is a time to question. I doubt all the time. I question all the time, particularly with what God is doing in given situations. We see that through the Bible, and there's not um, anything wrong with that, and I don't want to dissuade you from doing that. But in this text, it seems as though there's a time to be quiet and a time to trust that God is doing great things. The clay doesn't ask questions, nor do these other items in the text here. He continues, this is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Who are you? You can't talk to me like that. Why do you keep saying what I can and can't do? Why do you keep doubting what I'm going to do for you? And again, there's this tension between like doubt, question, wrestle, struggle. Yes, absolutely. But then in this text, it's almost like stop. Stop talking. Trust me. Comfort my people. You are precious. You are honored. You are loved. You are my chosen servant. You are the instrument that I'm going to be using. It's like God is using these heavy terms for this relationship that he has with his people, and they just don't want to hear it. They won't accept it. He says, stop talking. Walter Brueggemann says, no, the clay does not ask what is being made. No, the clay does not comment on the handles being formed. No, the sperm does not question the father. See, told you, it's legit. No, the fetus does not interrogate the mother in labor. No, the creature does not question the creator. No, the exiles do not interrogate the Lord of history. No, Israel does not cross-examine Yahweh. No, 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 no. Stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. Trust me comfort, you're loved, you're precious, you're honored. It looks like I'm not loved and honored and precious when you look around your situation and you're in a foreign land and your old home has been destroyed and you keep hearing this guy in the back of your head saying, I'm going to do all these great things and you say, well, do them. And it's almost like God is saying, I will stop talking. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give orders to the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind. It is I who stretched out the heavens. It is I who marshaled the starry host. I will raise up Cyrus. I will make his way straight. I will do what I am going to do. Trust me, because this is what I'm doing for you. We have so many questions and uncertainties 
And at times, those take us so far away that we begin to believe the lie that God's not invested in us anymore, that God doesn't have a plan for us, that God's not working out all things for the good. Now, understand this. That doesn't always mean that the news in the hospital room is good news. And that doesn't always mean that the outcome is like we've predicted or like we've thought or like we've prayed so hard for. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I understand it. I'm not going to stand up here and try to explain to you why God does some of the things that he does. What I want to do in this text here is just commend to you this idea that he's in control, that he's invested, and that he cares, even when you're in exile. It's as if he's saying, Israel, stop talking and trust me. Comfort, your hard service has been completed, your sins paid for, he gives strength to the weary, power to the weak, you're chosen, you're precious, you're honored, you're loved. The ways that I see this playing out a bit for us, do you allow God to work in unexpected ways? He says, Cyrus is my guy, to which they said, no, David's the guy, David's line is the guy. That guy's not even, not even from Israel, you can't do that. And I think in a different way, sometimes we, we put God in these boxes of how he can and can't work. And sometimes, as we've talked about in the past, the ways that he can and can't work don't involve us. We say, oh, I'm this or I'm that. I'm too young. I'm too terrible of a person. My past is this. Um, and we discredit what God can do through us. Remember, in this context, we are pagans and we are foreigners and we really have no right to be involved in this story, but God chooses to use us in great ways all the time. And when I say great ways, how I see this playing out for us now is the friendships, the deep-seated friendships that are being born here, where we're invested in one another, where we care about one another, where we allow God to work through, through the things that, that we're doing. Are you able to silence the unhealthy cynicism and doubt? And again, I'm all for cynicism, I'm all for doubt, but sometimes it takes us so far that we can't see what God is doing. So we're able to silence that and surrender to the creator of the universe in the way where he says, stop talking, trust me. I'm doing something that you might not understand that might not look like I'm involved at all, but I am, trust me. Do you trust that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together like we learned from Colossians and further that he is reconciling all things to himself? I'm quite certain that at some point these words that are coming out of my mouth are going to come back to bite me because I'm quite certain that as we live this life, terrible things happen. But even in the midst of that, I want to be so committed to this that even in the midst of pain and suffering and exile, there's still that hope out there somewhere that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. That includes me, and that includes my situations, and that includes all of the stuff that we go through. And then fourth, can you accept a message of hope and peace and comfort and love? Or are we like Israel in this time where they basically say, I hear you, but that doesn't work for me. I hear the words coming out of your mouth, but I can't accept it because they've taken all these experiences, all of these hurts, all these things that don't seem to, to go with the message they've heard, and they've built up this wall that keeps them from understanding love and hope and comfort. I think one of the biggest struggles that we face as people is life. 
and how hard it is at times. But I want to continue to bring back this message, the same one that the poet uttered 2,600 years ago. Comfort my people. God is invested in you even when it doesn't seem that he might be. You are precious, you are honored, and you are loved. And I hope there's a part of you that can begin to accept that so that these walls that we've built up can, be, can begin to break down so that our first reaction isn't that doesn't work for me. And perhaps our first inclination would be trust, acceptance, and belief.